Welcome to The Last Thing I Saw. I'm your host, Nicholas Rapold. This week is a two-part episode with a special interview. First, I chat with the one and only Amy Taubin about our recent viewing, starting with the new Steven Soderbergh movie, No Sudden Move, which is already a highlight of the summer. We also cherry-pick a couple of films from festivals, Courtroom 3H and Suad. And looking at the big picture, we celebrate how online programs like Another Screen are seizing the day and sharing movies that we might not otherwise see. And then, as a grand finale to the episode, the interview. I chat with one of the stars of No Sudden Move, actor, writer, director Amy Simons. More about that later, after the break. But first, let's talk with Amy Taubin about No Sudden Move and some other movies. For the latest episode, I'm very pleased to be back on the show with Amy Taubin. It's been a little while. Glad to have you back on again, Amy. Well, I'm really happy to be here. I love to do this show, Um, so I'm glad you asked me. A big impetus for us to talk uh, was the new Steven Soderbergh film, which is on HBO Max, so easy for all to see. And that's No Sudden Move. Do you want to do the honors in uh, describing the, uh, the story? Oh, it's impossible to describe the story. Um, I really love this film. And, you know, I'm kind of unhappy that I reviewed the last five Soderbergh movies for Art Forum. And I think they were wonderful because I think in general, except for maybe The Good German, which I loathe, Uh, He makes wonderful movies, but this is one of his great movies. And the proof that he really has a pop genre sensibility that is just, I mean, I think this movie makes uh, the Coen brothers and Tarantino look like posers. It's an original script by Ed Solomon, and Soderbergh and Solomon have worked before on Mosaic, I guess, most recently. But it's a really amazing script. It's set in the 50s. The art direction is amazing. This is a film in which the wallpaper just has an extra curlicue, so it's mind-bogglingly funny and absurd and uh, I don't know. I don't know how you talk about the tone of the film. Yeah, because it's it's a black comedy, and it's a black comedy that's also a period comedy. And so the satire is on, in part, the fifties themselves when such things as happen in this movie happen, and it's also on movies of the period. Yeah, I I agree. Actually, it's funny. I recently watched Odds Against Tomorrow, (laughs) and and that definitely came to mind when I was watching this, because I guess, you know, at the beginning, it's kind of a heist coming together. That's the structure of it, that a person is putting together a few people to commit a crime. Right. And it was really interesting seeing how Soderbergh is sort of addressing some of the same you know, questions about the racial and historical dynamics that just kind of naturally set into motion, especially in the kind of intensified power dynamics of people feeling each other out in a little gang of criminals and, you know, 
how things are going to play out and who's going to get the upper upper hand and who's going to get what. And I really thought it was really skillful how every scene has a kind of negotiation calculation aspect where without pushing it, I, you know, I, I'm kind of always aware of like the immediate stakes and then kind of the larger stakes. And I haven't really seen it done this elegantly and this persuasively in a long time. So maybe I should talk about one or two specifics. Yes. Uh, So it's uh, 1954 in Detroit, and two things are significant about that. Detroit is a town that has been redlined uh, severely, and the redlining has harmed in a way that we don't understand at the very beginning, but we very soon learn. The central character, who is played by the absolutely great Don Cheadle, who has never been more magnificent, even though he looks like he is just dried up to almost nothingness. And the film opens with Don Cheadle doing this very, very long walk, and the music sounds kind of like this could be a spaghetti western and that's Mm -hmm. the way he's walking with it his hat on totally alone in this burnt out neighborhood and we don't know who he is and it's a very long walk and he finally arrives at a kind of house that's not really a hideout but somewhat and we meet someone who he seems to have been in business with before He was in jail, and he's just gotten out of jail for a robbery. And we don't know what that robbery was or who he did it for, but he's a kind of hired hand. And there are going to be several mafia-type gangs in the movie, one of them which is black and run by the absolutely magnificent Bill Duke. Yeah. And one thing about this movie is that you can really make a distinction between great actors who have charisma, Bill Duke, Don Cheadle, and our old friend Matt Damon. They are just, they come on the screen and they're just electrifying. And then there's a bunch, like two dozen amazing character actors, uh, and he handles that extraordinarily well. He kind of, yeah, he, he slots them in to do something pretty precise and they, and they, they do it well. Um, I mean, I don't know. That's definitely something I felt with Benicio Del Toro, who I guess plays, you know, the kind of other person who Don Cheadle's character is paired with. Yeah, and uh, Benicio Del Toro is more than just a character actor, but he ha- he's the second banana in this film mm-hmm. to Don Cheadle. So it's not the greatest part in the world, but he makes out like a bandit. Yeah, yeah. No, no, that's true. I mean, others kind of more along the character actor line, like Ray Liotta is in there. And I mean, Brendan Fraser is (laughs) sort of interesting to to, to drop in there uh, as well as this, I don't know, sort of middleman thug organizer. And then and Kieran Culkin, I guess. I don't know if you're a Succession fan. He's not become this kind of totem as he is for other people, but I find he, he does the job here. The Amy Simons character, you know, I kind of liked how she was able to, you know, kind of slip in a little bit of wit around the straight-laced role of, you know, homemaker. Well, she has really precise comic timing. 
Mm-hmm. And the film is so, it's like tooled so precisely without destroying the life in it, which is the kind of filmmaking miracle. Yes. The film is really lively and really surprising, you know, a surprise every 20 seconds. But it's also really precise. Mm-hmm. And here's a funny factoid. So mm-hmm. I was emailing with Soderbergh, and I asked him, I said, there's a really strange credit on this film, which is the the ratio. It's widescreen, but I've never seen a film that was like 2.19 to 1. I mean, that is very odd. And mm-hmm. he said, oh, here. Yeah, he said, that's, the, that's what you can do with digital. It's great. We were using these anamorphic lenses that he likes a lot. But when we looked at the picture, the ends of the picture, the left side, the right side, uh, had too much distortion, so it was distracting. So we just locked them off. So instead of being 245 to 1, it's 219 to 1. He, he made a he made a, a bespoke aspect ratio. Yes, a bespoke aspect ratio. <laughs> That's interesting. And he, I mean, as usual, he shot the film and he edited the film under the usual pseudonyms. No, I mean the film has such a. I, I agree about the you know the rhythm of it. I mean, and, and it has a swing to it, but also not like a a swing that puts you totally at ease, I would say, or that is just for like our enjoyment, you know, it's, there's, cause there's enough of a, you know, a sinister edge to the, to the twistiness that kept the suspense and the actual sense of danger there for me, which is, I, I don't, doesn't always happen for me with, you know, some of his lighter excursions into crime. Yeah. No, this has some really nasty undercurrents. Yeah. A lot of it around race as I said, you know, redlining is just there underneath as an issue. But so are other things having to do with a rivalry in the mob scene. I mean, Don Cheadle wants something in this film. And really what makes the film run is that we want him to have whatever that is, even though we don't know precisely what it is till the very end. You know, there have been a lot of movies tossed around as comparisons in stuff I've been reading. But in terms of how the plot is impossible to follow, it's kind of like The Big Sleep. (laughs) And it's really like The Big Sleep when, you know, all the writers went to Chandler, who wrote the original novel, and asked him, well, who killed the chauffeur and why? And Chandler said, oh, I have no idea. (laughs) (laughs) And I think there are probably specific things in this film just like that. Yeah. Well, it's also an interesting comparison because now that I think about it, the word hard-boiled comes to mind a little bit in thinking of Don Cheadle's character because just this kind of level, coolly kind of appraising things. Um, I mean, there's that great scene early on when, I mean, he's first coming to get to find out what the job might be. And he's he's completely sp- suspicious and rightfully so because there's nothing, you know, there, nothing that he's encountered till then, you know, should motivate him to be trusted in any way in walking into this deal. And, you know, uh, yeah, he goes into that, 
I forget if it's a bar or something. He's going to go in the back and he's, he gets the gun that's in the, in the behind the bar counter and he's just not going to like um, be caught at all unawares by, by anything. And that kind of like practical cynicism, I guess you'd call it, or just right. like realism, uh, I, I thought was really great how he played it. I have to say like, I haven't always been a fan of all of Cheadle's performances, um, but this one, his acting here is so precise. Like, it was not a wrong step and it's so precisely scaled and everything. It's, I don't know, really great. And, you know, this is not something that should worry anyone, but if you pay too much attention to trying to figure out the plot, I mean, I'm sure when I've seen the movie five times, I will be able to tell you the plot. <laughs> uh, but if that's all you're worried about, you miss all the great filmmaking mm. and all the great, this is one of the best design, uh, production design film I've seen in years. And it's absolutely 50s and I lived in the 50s and I lived in a suburban house for part of the 50s. So it's, it's precise but it's just a little bit extra. <laughs> <laughs> uh, just a cringe-worthy extra in the prints, uh, the women blouses they wear, the wallpaper. Just the tiniest bit extra that's like, <laughs> The production designer on it is Hannah Beekler. I find what she does to be pretty great. Black Panther, she's found kind of interesting things to, to, to slip mm -hmm. in. Moonlight was another. Yeah, oh, Moonlight is gorgeous. Yeah, yeah. But the, that's, I mean, you know, off the top of my head, I would not have thought the same production designer did both these films. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because, you know, Moonlight is kind of rapturous looking, even when it's supposedly something is tacky. But there's no rapture of that kind, visual <laughs> rapture in this film. <laughs> yeah. I mean, which is, I feel like, is a doubly, like, impressive feat because, I mean, yeah, you, you mentioned at the outset that part of what the movie responds to is, like, previous movies that set in the 50s a little bit. And, I mean, I don't know. I just remember seeing movies exhaustively in the, like, 80s and 90s, like, and TV shows just, like, restaging the 50s and in this kind of kitschy way and, until it felt like there was nothing more you could try to say you know, without it, your mind just kind of turning off, that does not, does not happen here. There's like an active mischievous yes. intelligence um, in, in the visualization of it. Um, but even just the way like particular rooms and houses are laid out, I found kind uh -huh. of interesting, which also makes the, the movie, you know, unpredictable. And, and also there's nothing romanticized about the fifties here. No. Um, and in the end, there is an underlying, um, I guess you could call it politics, that get exposed that we won't talk about. That was really uh, quite ugly. But it's very, very different from, say, Todd Haynes reworking Cirque in mm. uh, Far From Heaven, which is exactly the same period, could not be less alike. And that's a movie that takes place in suburbia largely as well. It's Detroit, the city of Detroit, but this is set largely in very close to the city, but kind of suburban areas where people have single family homes mm. of all classes. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, I was mentioning Odds Against Tomorrow, the Robert Wise movie with Robert Ryan playing just kind of a matter-of-factly racist criminal is paired up with Harry Belafonte, uh, kind of down-on-his-luck guy who goes in on a, on a bank heist in upstate New York. And that came to mind because that movie, I think it was written by a blacklisted screenwriter. Uh-huh. So it was, kind of, it was kind of front and center about the thought experiment of, all right, you know, we're actually going to acknowledge the racial tension uh, at hand. And, you know, what, what happens if you have two people who they're actually both going to benefit from this heist, but they actually cannot work together. I mean, specifically Robert Ryan refuses, is, you know, makes it difficult, which yeah, just easily extends to like the American endeavor. <laughs> to think about that as I was watching this, um, Soderbergh finds a way, uh, and I think a lot of it is uh, with Cheeto's char- characterization to think through some similar things. Um, mm-hmm. But um, the only problem I have with the movie I don't know if you have the same problem. <laughs> yeah. I think you might. Yeah. I just, the title, I just cannot. Well, it, it doesn't scan. I mean, no. it, the rhythm is wrong. It does, and it, yeah. It, the movie was renamed. I mean, it was called something else. Ah. And then they discovered just before they started shooting that that was the title of another movie that came out fairly recently. Oh, okay. Um, and I can't remember what the original title was. But... Huh. It should be moves, plural, yeah. or yes. uh, I don't know. It's a weird, weird title. But that that would be the only, only thing. <laughs> I mean, in terms of movies that are actually you know coming out on more than one screen or are widely available, this this has mm-hmm. to be like really one of the highlights of the year already. And I also like Zola, which is coming out this week. I think that's also right up there. So it's a big week for me. And- and this is coming out simultaneously on uh, HBO Max and in theaters. Right. For Fourth of July weekend entertainment. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that's true. Wow. <laughs> Celebrate America. So yeah, so that's no sudden move. And switching gears a little, uh, I think there was another movie that uh, you saw that I wanted to catch up with. I haven't yet, although I do like the director's previous work. And that director is Antonio Mendez Esparza. Right. He's Spanish and he went to Columbia Film School and he ended up teaching, and I think he still does, in Florida. And his last wonderful film was made in that area his previous movie was Life and Nothing More. Yeah. Yeah, that was set in Florida, just a really fine-grained, detailed portrait of uh, a woman who, you know, was just trying to stay on top of her life and, and also is kind of pursuing a romance. And, you know, her son is kind of at, at risk. Um, but it, that's a movie also just really puzzlingly, for some reason, sort of fell through the cracks basically i mean i, I don't know I, I did i did my part i i programmed it and screened it but this latest movie is it's a documentary his other movies are fiction movies with largely non-actors it's a kind of neorealism mm. um but this is an actual documentary and a very tough kind of documentary because this film is titled courtroom 3h and it's modeled on a french film by raymond depardin 
And Antonio's movie, he takes a camera into family court in Florida. And there are two parts. The first part is hearings and the second part is trials, but they're pretty much the same. You get a fragment of a case and then so, and then you get another case and another case. And sometimes you, you come back to the case you've had a fragment of. Mm. And the situations are all different, but the procedure and the judge for all the hearings, it's the same judge. And he's a really nice guy. Mm. And that was great. I mean, he is a really caring guy. And people have like a year to work out whatever the problem is that brought them to family court before it's decided whether they can keep their children or their children will be adopted by others. It's around 44 minutes. That's the first really happy situation where it's resolved that these two children who've been with a foster family for a year, they are given full adoption to these two very, very nice parents who want them very much. But most of the time, you see the parents come into court, and it's incredibly sad because, you know, when people come into court and their children, it's a question about whether they can keep their children or their children have already been taken away. Or in mm. some cases, they don't want anything to do with their children and they have to tell the judge that. Mm. They're all defensive and there are different ways that they're defensive or different ways that they're trying to act responsible, but they're not doing a good job at it. And there's lots of tears and lots of protestations mm. and very seldom are the children there unless they're teenagers, but there are situations in which there are teenagers. The difference for me between this and the French film was because I don't have to read subtitles, I can just watch behavior in this film. Whereas oh, in the yeah. French film, I couldn't, and, and basically a film like this, or there are no films like this, but this film, uh, its meaning is all in the most subtle kinds of physical behavior in the courtroom and physical behavior in relation to authority. You know, the judge is an authority, the person who uh, asks for the hearing, whoever they are, is an authority. And very often the parent has done something that they feel guilty about. Uh, but you just get fragments. And it isn't like there's a lot of emotion going on. But it's just very interesting to observe. I'm yeah. sure... I mean, it, it is a true observational documentary. I know that word mm. is thrown around a lot. But this is an observational documentary. It's been said before, but the, the courtroom... I guess it's been said before, maybe in the wrong wrong way, that the courtroom is a kind of stage. I mean... When I think of it, it just seems like the stage and that the person is really just exposed, you know, mm -hmm. um, it, not as a place where you're able to perform, uh, you know, declaim or something, but just where 
you are put there and you are before an audience, uh, you know, the audience of one of the judge or if there's a jury. And yeah, so I, t I tend to find courtroom documentaries, I mean, on some level, almost too hard to watch just because, uh, you know, the stakes are so high. There's an, um, often kind of an inherent feeling that the person is coming face to face. This is like the last moment. I mean, it is not uh, like some courtroom dramas. It is not very dramatic. And mm -hmm. in part, it's because he cuts things off. I mean, the director, you don't get to sit with, you don't get to see a whole kind of hearing. You see fragments of it. And very often you see where a decision is made. Okay, this will be the situation for the next three months. And we'll see how well you do. And mm. if you do well, then maybe you'll go on to another stage. And you don't necessarily see whether they do or not. How does he film film all of this? I know sometimes there's not like a real choice given to the filmmaker in these spaces, but I'm, I'm curious how right. he does. It's hit on at the rather long table where the parent sits Sometimes it's two parents. Uh, sometimes they have an attorney. More often, there's someone from children's services and from family services. So there can be as many as four people or mm. even five people at a table with other people. I'm not sure who they are in the background. They may be people who are like note takers or people who are going to come in for the next case. I'm not sure about that. Hmm. Uh, and then it's a reverse angle shot to the judge who is alone, flanked by his American flag, and I guess it's the state flag of Florida, um, in his chair. Uh, hmm. And so it's it's shot counter shot. Hmm. Well, that's pretty stark in a way. Yeah. And that one is on streaming, or is that also getting uh, released? This played once in, I think, AFI docs, and now it's going to other uh, doc festivals. And I think that it will have some kind of television release, but they're going the festival route first. Mm. It's, mm -hmm. it's a tough sell, this film. Yeah. You know? He doesn't editorialize at all. It is strictly observational. Well, that, that makes me think just uh, quickly of uh, a movie that was... Uh, particularly skilled with finding like a hundred different ways to shoot in a courtroom space. Um, do you remember that movie Get? It was at Cannes like, I don't know, six years ago. It's it's, it's about a, a divorce. It's by this Israeli brother-sister. Oh, yeah. Alcabets. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I was a big fan of that. They found all these different angles and dynamics to vectors to, to, to the room. And, you know, Kim Longinato made uh, oh, a yeah. film in Iranian family court or Iranian divorce court. Yeah. Which is very interesting, but very dramatic film. Yeah. <laughs> with lots of people crying and, and women really put in terrible situations where you think they are totally trapped. Uh, because here, the children very seldom are on the screen we don't see the people who are likely to be most damaged by the mm. situation. So that, you know, means that it isn't 
terrifically emotional. There are a lot of people saying, we have to make the choice that will protect the child, but the child isn't there. Right. Which, I mean, which in a way almost sounds like, I mean, he probably didn't have access to filming the children, but it ends up being a kind of interesting statement on its own. I mean, there are a couple of children who do come to court. Yeah. Uh, most notably, that family that does get to adopt these kids. Yeah. Okay, so that's courtroom 3H, uh, Antonio Mendez Esparza. Uh, will be wending its way through the festival circuit. And then there was one other, speaking of festivals, I think there was one other movie that you saw at uh, Tribeca. That yeah, uh, Suad which I certainly would have given the grand prize to an international. Suad is by an Egyptian woman director. Her name is Eten Amin, and it played in Berlin, where it also won. At Tribeca, it won a prize for the two young actresses. And I don't know if it has distribution, but it should. Hmm. Um, There are these two sisters, And they live in a small village. And um, one of them is 18 and one of them is 13. And the 18-year-old is very active on Facebook and social media. And she makes up different stories of who she is, depending on who she's talking to. And she comes to believe those stories that she makes up or elaborates on. She doesn't completely make them up. Uh, And she has somehow met online, or maybe once in person, a guy who is from upper middle class. I mean, he has a career as some kind of media provider uh, or creator. And they have some kind of love affair where she believes he's in love with her and he's going to marry her. And he tells her, she, he has actually, he says, told her that he loves her. It's mm-hmm. totally unclear whether he's met her on Facebook and maybe they had coffee once, but she believes he's, she tells people she's going to meet his parents and they're engaged, although they've been waiting to become formally engaged, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. She has a younger sister. And her younger sister is in school and is extremely intelligent. And in the middle of the film, something bad happens to the older sister. And the younger sister wants to find out why this has happened. And so she does this extraordinary thing. She's 13 years old. She gets on the train. She finds this guy's telephone number and email on her sister's phone and she goes to the city because it's the city he lives in uh two and a half hours away to meet him because he she wants to find out why this terrible thing happened to her sister and she begins to interrogate him you know and he feels so guilty he can't just blow her off And she is absolutely determined to understand and to understand what part he has played in this terrible thing that has happened. She wants to know what he told her her sister, what he promised her sister. 
And by now, this guy is engaged to someone else. Mm. And we see the woman he's engaged to, we see her family. She's even more upper class and very liberal and westernized. Uh, the two girls from the village are very conventional and not westernized at all. But for me, yes, the problem about social media and how this term, which I understand that is used a lot in trans culture, disassociative personalities, hmm. that you have multiple personalities. Here it is applied to what happens to uh, people who build personalities online so that they can act, interact in different ways with different people. Hmm. And the film is to a certain extent about that. But it's one of several films I've seen recently, some of them by women directors and some of them by men, uh, that are suddenly interested in young teenagers, girls of 11 to 13, say, in a liminal stage, who are trying to figure out what their lives are going to be like when they become women and want to take power. But unlike American movies, power, it isn't the power of Wonder Woman. It isn't physical power. It's how you use your mind to find out things that people try to keep secret from you. And how you use your mind to find out how power works. And I find this, this really, really interesting. So um, there are two films that we've seen uh, that we can't talk about because they're in Cannes and they are embargoed. But I think I can say that I want to write about this kind of film. So I would write about Jonas Capagnano's film, which is called A Chiara, for Chiara, and probably Tatiana Cueso's film, Prayers for the Stolen, and both of those were in Cannes. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think that this is a very interesting moment for a different kind of film about teenage girls. Yeah, that's a really interesting grouping and ob observation. I mean, it's I mean, I, another aspect that's interesting to me, I mean, I haven't seen uh, Suad, but I, I, yeah, I saw the, the other two movies. What's also interesting is just how they basically take power or like assume the power of, you know, questioning and confronting, which is, I'm always impressed when that happens because it's kind of, it's kind of conditional on the other party, like going with it. You know, <laughs> there's the chance that it, it could be met with, you know, just a refusal or even more some sort of violence. So there's a real courage to it that I think isn't even always apparent just because this, uh, sometimes the structure of movie dialogue is just people are talking, you know, back and forth, back and forth. But like the actual staking of space and the staking of claim to the right to, to question someone like that um, right. is, is really impressive and courageous. Yeah, obviously we can't really talk about those two movies. Um, but actually another movie that was also at Sundance. I don't know if you saw it or if you think it, it's related, but um, just because it's also having to do with presentation on the internet and, I don't know, exploring boundaries a little bit, uh, we're all going to the World's Fair. Did you end up... Oh, I missed it. I heard okay. that it was very interesting. I definitely found it interesting. And it's also a teenage girl, and she is participating in kind of 
some sort of like viral game or that I don't even know. I don't even understand how it works. It's a, oh, it's a challenge. You see, it's participating in an online challenge where you're supposed to do something, and it's kind of a spooky uh, challenge that you know where it almost feels like a form of like social hysteria where everyone's agreeing to go a little nuts over this particular uh, uh-huh. illusion of like a haunted internet in a way, a haunting on the internet. Um, uh-huh. So she does that and and also like kind of plays with other things on the internet and strikes up this dialogue with a guy who you know turns out to be just this middle-aged guy in some suburban house who talks to her like he's her confidant and he's protecting her and you spend a lot of the movie figuring out you know where that relationship is going to lead and you kind of just watch her explore this space and playing really it's a uh-huh. and that's and that's what's also interesting about it, is that she's i'm speaking kind of being a liminal stage in life it's almost a point where her play is, it's like different kinds of play. There's almost something childlike about it, but there's also something, you know, adolescent about it. So that was a movie that I kind of went in a little, you know, wondering where it would go with the premise of going online and then there's dangers online. But I, I was kind of happily surprised by it. It's, it's also genuinely strange at times, which I really appreciate because so much about online is just bizarre. We've sort of taken it for granted, but all this like <laughs> assuming of identities <laughs> and like the way people relate, a lot of it's just really strange that we take for granted. I mean, yeah, obviously people talk a lot about Twitter, but just the way you have like, yeah, a million people talking in like 500 different registers in the same giant room in a way is, is very weird. And anyone can buttonhole anyone else, you know? Um, yeah. I guess the first time I saw that in a movie, uh, I think was, Remember in, um, I think it's in Maps to the Stars, uh, where Cronenberg, he has Mia Wasikowska befriends someone by through Twitter, like a Carrie Fisher character. Oh, right. You remember that? That was like early. She goes to work for her? Yeah. Maps to the Stars is the only Cronenberg movie that I, you know, I don't get. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I be nice. I don't get it. Yeah. Um, so I don't remember, but I do remember that, that she Twitter. makes that contact through yeah. Twitter and she gets a real job. I mean, this yeah. totally crazy young woman gets a real job yeah. in some place that they should not hire her at all because there's some terrible <laughs> backstory. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, that just sort of randomly jumped to mind. It's like an earlier instance of that strange mm-hmm. connection that can happen. Um but yeah, so that's, I don't know, that's something to think about with, um, with those three books, Suad, Akiara, and Prayers for the Stolen. More, more on which later we'll talk more when we can. And those, yeah, that's all festival films. I think we also wanted to talk a bit about, uh, speaking of online, just programming online. Yeah. I don't know how that possibility, first the necessity of it over you know the past year, but also it's been nice just to see it kind of bloom and, and maybe it'll stick around in a good way, being able to program some things that maybe would not find a place, yeah, would not be made available without the kind of internet. I mean, in a way, it's just been a deluge of stuff that you want to watch that you've never seen before. You were talking about a movie you had never seen before that you found oh, yeah. online. And what was that movie? Open Mic Solitaire? Or, yeah. Yeah. That you never would have found probably anywhere. 
No, unless I was looking for that particular movie, uh, I, I would not. I would not have found it. And someone programmed it, put it on the the site of a, I think, physical film festival, Media City Film Festival. I'm not sure what the state is of a lot of festivals. And you know, the the programmer, I guess, reached out to the director, Julius Amede Lau, and just kind of persisted in in convincing them to to make it available online. And just like that, you have a movie that. I don't want to overstate it, but definitely feels like it plugs in and that it's a, a sort of another link, a film at a time and place. I, you know, I wasn't necessarily expecting it. It's, it's a short film um, set in Paris, a black Parisian. He's basically takes over a radio station um, and holds it hostage and kind of delivers this just impassioned, enraged and yeah, sad uh, speech about a number of things and you know it's it was remarkable to watch the movie keeps cutting away to you know like a bar or in the street where people are hearing and you know either kind of looking askance or feeling really energized by this kind of breaking of boundaries and just seizing of uh, seizing control for the moment just to get a complaint out there yeah would not have known about it uh happened to happen to see it uh, so that's an example. And also, how would this play? You know, would this, in a, in a festival or in a program, program, it would have been a program of short films. And sometimes things can disappear there. So that was, that was a cool thing. Well, I want to give a shout out to Another Screen is the name of the site. Oh, yeah. And it's the screening uh, part of the site, which is called Another Gaze which is a feminist film site out of Birkbeck, uh, the college in England where Laura Mulvey taught. She's, I guess she's retired from there. And it is uh, a collective of women, but there seems to be one person running everything, subtitling the movies, writing the notes, and she is remarkable. And the two most recent programs because there have been great programs and they've uncovered films that have not been ever seen or haven't been seen that much. But the two recent programs that I thought were amazing was one was a Marguerite Duras program where they showed six short segments from a television series that was on French TV in the 60s. And Duras had these segments where they, she basically interviewed people, but she interviewed people in situations. And there's one that's fantastic and made me think a lot about Chris Marker, whose 100th birthday would have been, I think, two days ago, right. maybe yesterday, because Marker did those films with animals in zoos. And so she goes to a zoo in Paris, a zoo which is mostly big cats, or that's the house she's in. And she largely interviews the keepers, what it's like for them to be the keeper of these large cats who have never touched grass with their feet, who've never seen a forest, who are confined to cages. I mean, it is like major tragedy going on. But, you know, it's Duras, this middle-aged, small French woman talking to the zookeeper. And at one point, 
the camera person who is very discreet in all this, I guess they planned it and they found an empty cage. And they look at the two humans from the point of view of one of these cats who's running along, you know, behind the bars, but very fast back and forth. And that's what the camera does. But mostly it's what she asks them. I mean, what she asks the zookeepers, she has uh, interviews with kind of famous people, Jean Moreau. Uh, she has an interview with one of the young teenage high school guys who's a leader in 68. And then there's an absolutely amazing document about her that was made in the late 80s. She made a lot of very good documentaries and she made them largely for French television. But this is exceptional. Michelle Port? That's it. And she Duras interviews Lola Pagal, who is a stripper, who is just like, I mean, you would think that Betty Gordon got variety by watching this, <laughs> but she never saw it. So Michelle Port is the person who interviews Dura. It's a feature-length documentary that she made in the late 80s, and they played it along with these six episodes from this, you know, it's one of these friends, they look <laughs> so funny, these TV series now. They look like parodies of themselves. So they begin with women in Paco Rabanne dresses, you know, the ones that were made out of plastic discs and commercials for stockings that are just like the commercial that's in two or three things. I know about her when <laughs> the wife, Marina Vladi, reads from Elle magazines, My, do you want my legs to look like... Yeah. Blah, blah, blah. And then in the middle of all of this, you have these amazing interviews by Duras, which are really extraordinary. Yeah. Uh, because she was a great journalist. I, I mean, I think her journalism, in a way, is much more interesting than her fiction. Hmm. Is that available? Yeah, there are collections of, you know, journalistic writings, like mm -hmm. essays, short uh, interview pieces. One is a long nonfiction book, and then there's at least one collection that, and I'm talking about stuff that's translated. Mm -hmm. So anyway, all this was on another screen site, yes. but at the same time, there was a series of films by Palestinian women, and that began about five weeks ago, and the films just kept coming in, and they would put them up as they came in. Uh, and so in the end, I think there were about 400 films that they showed, most of them short, but a couple of features over four decades at least. And that was a totally amazing show and you could have spent, you know, weeks with it. Yeah. I don't know if this is definitely the case, but wasn't that put together partly in response to... To recent events? Yeah. <laughs> to bombing and everything. Yeah. Yes. Um, yes. I mean, that's another aspect that maybe... You know, I, I take for granted when I see these things online, but it's that it's this ability to rapidly respond to the world with programming. You know, it's not like four months from now, uh, there is a screening series about films by Palestinian women. They're immediately, you know, pretty quickly able to put that together and put that online. And there's something very exciting uh, about that. Yeah, I agree. I agree totally. And I hope they keep that site going 
even when people start going back to theaters. I mean, we were talking before about Anthology Film Archives is going to open at the beginning of August, but they say they are going to their online site going, which has some things for free and some things for pay and some things that are collaborations with other media centers and museums and stuff. Uh, And, you know, I think John Mirapiri said this site had millions of visitors from all over the world. Yeah, the scale of it is just incredible, especially since, I mean, you know, sometimes the programs uh, are pretty particular uh, focus to them. So I'm really heartened by that. There was one program that I, I still have to watch. I, don't, I hope it hasn't already left the site. Regional Home Movies or Regional... The Al Larvik Fund. Oh, yeah. Regional Films of Politics and Parody. It's uh, documenting daily lives of his family and his North Dakota community. So yeah, something like that. I don't know. It's great to see that kind of variety. But yeah, hooray for Anthology in, in, in August. <laughs> the hottest month. <laughs> exactly. I think the air conditioning has improved. I think so. And uh, certainly in the smaller theater is air conditioned. Yeah. I think they've done things about, you know, you have to do things because of COVID uh, right. with ventilation. So. Do they have the uh, dividers? like? Uh, no. <laughs> I mean, this was a theater that once upon a time began with dividers, right? Right. Yeah, that's what I, I was thinking of. I always think of that picture. But I think they ditched those seats. Yeah. All right. I think I think we actually made it through everything we intended to get through. Um, yeah. um I mean I guess I was I was going to say a little something about the kind of movie I'd randomly seen on streaming, but now it almost just seems like that would be perverse. <laughs> I'll just quickly mention in the back catalog of movie, I've been having a lot of fun rooting around if you have a movie membership. Um, I think they tend to have a lot of good, great, and classic movies in their catalog that aren't really necessarily advertised as the new offerings of the month. So, you know, uh-huh. you, can, you can catch up with like Once Upon a Time in Anatolia, for example, or I think The Conformist was even was on there. And one thing, I mean, not a classic, but definitely a movie that's kind of occasionally been hard to see, uh, Threads, uh, directed by Mick Jackson. Uh-huh. And he basically was working for the BBC and he saw the day after, or he was planning to do this and he saw the day after and thought it was, it went too easy on on nuclear holocaust. Oh my God. So yeah, Mick Jackson then made his own movie of what would happen if the bomb was dropped on, I forget if it's Leeds or a kind of industrial town that would be strategically important. So that's why it's bombed. Um, mm-hmm. And what he does is he tries to show basically how all the you know best laid plans of secret interim government that comes to, comes into being with this sort of thing is just useless. In the same way that like duck and cover is, is not going to help you uh, <laughs> when enough megatons are heading your way. And it's docudrama style, so it's it's indebted to Peter Watkins. It's in that tradition, and it's 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 pretty good. The other thing he does is he extends it generations. So it takes a timeline that's sort of on a daily or weekly basis for a while, but then it just jumps like 10, 15 years, which is the flip side of these disaster movies, which that usually you just see the rubble like a week later. This movie tries to imagine uh, what the you know chaos would be and how humanity 
even possibly comes back afterwards, which is wow. kind of interesting to watch as, as well and is sort of medieval, <laughs> basically. So yeah, that's Threads. Um, and he's, God, I looked at his filmography and it was kind of crazy. Oh yeah, he directed The Bodyguard and L.A. Story. So I don't know. <laughs> You're kidding. Yeah, so this is, it's kind of like Michael Apted, I guess, you know, it's... Came to Hollywood at some point and... Yeah, yeah. So that, that's after toiling away. There's a great interview with him, you know, one of those interviews on the Directors Guild site, those kind of oral history ones, right. uh, which are part video and part transcript. Those I find always really interesting. And his is, is no exception. Hmm. So yeah, that's Threads. If you want to just give up for a day, <laughs> that movie will do it to you. The weird thing is I actually watched it basically on the day that the bomb is dropped in the movie, which was I did, I just by accident. Oh my god! Yeah. <laughs> when when was it made? Threads. Threads is 1984, so it must have been made. Yeah, 82, 83. Um, uh-huh. There's a whole history of this on British television because the first film that Peter Watkins made for them right. was also a disaster war film that everyone thought was a news report. Right. The War Game which is from 66, and Culloden, I think, might be his first feature for television, which is like, I mean, a bit along the lines of like La Commune, which is taking a historical event and filming it like, you know, it's a news event happening right then. Um, But I think it's The War Game. I think it's probably The War Game. um, And then Punishment Park also is along those. Well. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I don't know what, uh, what Peter Watkins is up to right now. I think he basically, didn't he kind of withdraw... Because of the, what's it called, the mono monoculture? He had some terms. Well, he got very, very angry at television in yeah. general. And I think he lives maybe in Denmark. When I last looked, his website was quite active, but that was about two years ago. Mm-hmm. Just a great filmmaker. Yeah. I mean, like La, La Commune, that's the staple of, of a, one of the classes he teaches, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the Commune, and also some of the art biographies, the extraordinary biopic of the painter. Edvard Munch? Yes. I, yeah, I love that. I w- An amazing film. Yeah, it's the best. I watched that again a couple months ago because I have a DVD with uh, the uh, anemic-looking monk on the cover. And um, <laughs> yeah, that movie is just really just makes it hard for me to watch any biographical film because I think that one is just so good. Oh, another, yeah, and that's another weird just streaming thing. I think it's still the case that, uh, that the Commune is available on Ovid streaming. I think they put that online a couple months ago. So Ovid just sent an email with their new streaming programming, and most of it is extraordinary. I mean, it's politically, it's political films largely, and some of it are films that have been really hard to see. Yeah. So that's a site to check out OBID. Yeah. So you all can feel guilty about not <laughs> watching enough because it's all on your screen. <laughs> no excuses. <laughs> That's right. So don't don't go out and enjoy the outdoors, <laughs> finally. Um, but I, I think we can uh, bring this in for a conclusion. Um, and yeah, we'll, we'll have more to say soon. Stay tuned. We'll be talking about Can. But as always, thanks, Amy. Thank you, Nick, for inviting me. And we'll talk again soon. Okay.
As you just heard, Amy Taubin and I are big fans of No Sudden Move, so it was wonderful to talk with Amy Simetz, whom I interviewed last year about a movie she wrote and directed called She Dies Tomorrow. In No Sudden Move, she plays Mary, an executive's wife, who is held hostage by the criminals, played by Don Cheadle and company, who are putting the squeeze on her husband. It's a typically nervy performance, conveying the many facets of her character, those she can show, and those that she usually has to keep under wraps. Simitz has worked before with Soderbergh on The Girlfriend Experience, and in her career she moves between acting and directing for movies and television. Here she talks about creating her character in the 1950s Detroit setting of No Sudden Move, taking inspiration from her grandparents, surprising Soderbergh with one of her acting choices, shooting during the pandemic, and of course, the last thing she saw. Hello, Amy. We actually spoke last year about uh, She Dies Tomorrow. Uh, I do remember, yeah. Um, that was, I think, at a very appropriately high anxiety time uh, <laughs> for, for a high anxiety film. How did you feel about the film being out of the world in that time? It's still so surreal. I, it's, you know, especially now that we're coming back, you know, and like it feels like that entire year and in, including the movie release, it, there's like almost a, a feeling of like, did that actually happen? You know, like, like it, it, are we really moving on? It was, it was a strange period of time, I think. Well, I mean, obviously for everyone and a, like an awful time for everyone too, but yeah. Yeah. When, when exactly did you start work on uh, No Sudden Move? I, it was the first thing that I had gone back to. So I believe it was, it was sometime in September that I flew to Detroit and then, um, and shot it. And, you know, Steven's so efficient. So even though I show up in the movie all the way through, (laughs) um, he blocked, he was block shooting. So it felt like, even that felt like, like, did that actually, did, did I actually shoot a movie? <laughs> and it, he's so efficient, you know? Yeah. And so um, he shot me out within a few weeks. But also it was, it, it was the first thing that I had done when I, I got back and, and was, was a little anxious about doing it. But knowing him and, and ha- having talked to him, because we, we are friends, colleagues, you know, because he was the executive producer on The Girlfriend Experience. So we've stayed, you know, I guess buddies. I don't know what you what you call um colleagues i I don't know friends (laughs) um and so i I had been talking to him and he and he he was explaining how all of the measures he was taking for um the covid and and the testing and how to set it up so that we could safely go back to work and Mm -hmm. you know even though i was anxious i was you know i guess in the film industry the person that you you are so lucky to go back to work with is the person that happens to have made contagion. So <laughs> you know. was, was that good or bad? Is he like, oh, I know what's gonna happen next? <laughs> he well, he just well, it's like I, I just trust him because I know that he wouldn't he wouldn't have a group of people come back to work. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. If he didn't think that it was, you know, plausible or not even just plausible, because that's not even plausible isn't good enough, you know. Right. Um, it, it had to be something that he felt confident in. And, and, and also, you know, if you, if you know his work ethic, he's all about somebody who knows how to execute something, you know? Mm-hmm. So even on the, on the COVID front, it was nice to, to know that he was very involved in developing how right. that actually looked, you know? 
Yeah. I mean, I guess things might even have been a little stricter at, at that point. I guess people were wearing masks all the time in, until the moment when someone says roll or something or. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm on, I'm on set right now and we we're still following protocol, you know, I mean, and I'm, I'm vaxxed and most people are vaxxed, but there's still, you know, a high level of, um, I mean, testing has gone from every day to, um, we're on a three day schedule, but yeah. yeah. Can, can I ask what, what you're shooting now? Um, I'm directing on uh, the show Outer Range that hasn't come out yet. Oh, great. I mean, that's something that is, you know, really cool about your career is how you switch so fluidly and well between uh, acting and directing. I mean, in terms of shifting gears, do you like have a different creative approach? Do you kind of have to like recede in some way when you're an actor versus, you know, a director? No, I mean, my first instinct was to just show you my suitcase. Oh. <laughs> like how fluid it is it just it's uh, that's, that's the answer is being is learning how to live out of a suitcase but uh like I, I actually really enjoy after I've been directing to mm -hmm. go onto a set and like have somebody tell me what to do you know mm -hmm. and and also just and try things out and if they don't like it then there's no um maybe not ego but um there's no no harm no foul to me Mm -hmm. like just had complete control over something yeah you know yeah. so there's something nice to just like trust fall into somebody else's vision as mm. opposed to feeling like i needed to as opposed to being being another cook in the kitchen you know sure yeah i mean and you get a break from any decision fatigue or something <laughs> oh yeah i get to go home yeah <laughs> at night and S switch off and the wake up and go i don't know if that's going to edit together you know or whatever <laughs> Or like, I need a shot of this. It's just like, you just show up, you know, you show I mean, you know your lines, yeah. but um, but you show up and you just trust. And it's it's quite liberating after having so much control and, and so much like sort of the weight on your shoulders as, as the writer director, you know? Yeah. And for your character in, in No Sudden Move, was that something that, that Steven Soderbergh, he just reached out to you specifically for it or? Yeah, he'd, um, he'd sent me, I was acting on, I was in Toronto and I was acting on that James Comey miniseries, and then was flying back to New York to do sound design from She Dies Tomorrow. And he texted me, he texted me and asked if I would read a script. And he happened, actually, he at that time was writing like, he'd written like six scripts. So I thought it was just to read a script. And, and so I thought it was something that he wrote that he was just like, here, read this and whatever. So I, I was like, I read it and then, and he goes, do you, do you wanna be, Mary in it and I was like uh or I hadn't read it no but he, he was like will you act in it will you are you willing to act for me and I was like yeah duh <laughs> um and then and I was I thought it was gonna be I thought it was gonna be like you know bubble <laughs> I thought it was gonna be and that, and that, which I love like I would have done it you know I was like yeah, yeah sure. I thought it was gonna be you know another like girlfriend experience or, so, or something be, like an in, another one of his like smaller compact products. Yeah, that it was like, oh, of course he asked me because he knows I'm cheap. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, sure. And then, and then it turns out it was this. So I was, I, I was going to do it anyways, but, it, but then I, you know, read it and it was fun and, um, and Ed's writing is fun and it's such a good pairing because it's, it's like, mm. oh, you know, it, it twisty and turny and, and exciting and moves so fast. Uh, both Ed's writing and, and Steven's direction mm. complement each other really well. How did you find the character? What is it that gets you? Is it a particular line or is it like, how do you like key into this, this sensibility, her, her sensibility? 
I mean, I think that I think all of it, you know, it's it's all of it is the costume and the the atmosphere, and also the other actors. You know, it's like you're dealing with you you're dealing with you, you have to deal with Don Cheadle. <laughs> no, he's you're you're acting with other people who are you know. There's a reason that they're so good is that they're not just they're not just good at saying words, they're also good at listening and playing off each other, you know? Mm -hmm. And so it was really fun to, to be able to try things out and have actors who could pick up what you were like throwing out there, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I think there was a combination of the actors and the obviously the costumes, which are amazing, and she like handmade most of them, um, and then the, the atmosphere, but the, the, <laughs> the I haven't said this yet, because I don't want to, I haven't wanted to draw attention to it, but I, um, Carmen Cuba, who's the casting director, is a good friend of mine. I texted her one day and I go, I'm going to try this accent out. And she goes, don't tell Steven. And I was like, I know, I know, I know. Because he's going to tell me no. He's going to tell me no. And I, and I, and I want to try it. And, and if he tells me no on set, that's totally fine. I'll stop doing it. But he didn't. And I just kept doing it. And two weeks went by. And I get this text because, you know, he goes home at night and he edits. And, all, and if you know him, he's very dry. Uh -huh. he's, not as, he's not as like chatty as I am. So like I get this text from him and, he, and it says, your accent is killing me. And I was like, shit, like shit. Like I've already shot two weeks. I'm gonna have to ADR, like, stop, <laughs> this is a big movie, you know, whatever. And then I go, do you, want, do you want me to stop? And he goes, no, it's hilarious. And I was like, oh, okay, okay, good. Like, but like, yeah, like he just didn't stop me and I just kept doing it because the, the funny thing about acting is like you, you always, you're, you're always like finding it like take to take and so like the first mm. take, you know, he didn't stop me and I had this accent and I like kind of made eye contact with him and I remember and I saw him, he's like, she's doing something and I was like, shit, does he like, we know we're friends. I was like, mm -hmm. does he want me to stop doing this? But like as an actor, you do your first take and you're like, nobody stopped me. I guess I'll just keep doing that, that choice. <laughs> just lean into it. <laughs> yeah, until somebody says that's really distracting or, yeah. or whatever, you know. And so for me, and as a director, again, that trust ball is like, I just was trusting that at some point if he didn't like it. Yeah. And so I just kept trying things and trying things and trying things and he just kept letting me. So <laughs> yeah, well, it's wonderful, and I I think that the movie's tone is so interesting, and and you kind of keep it spinning in just the right way. I mean, I mean, is that kind of hard balancing the kind of menace of the situations, but also having the sense of humor about it? No, I mean, uh, like I've 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 talked about this a little bit, pr approaching it in a tone, and you know, Stephen's movies have that right balance of like of excitement and adrenaline and mm -hmm. um and menace like the dark and darkness, but the, like a, yeah. a very clear sense of humor. And it's like, it's like stepping into that universe, you know, in mm -hmm. uh, he's like built sort of a, he has, obviously he has a clear voice. He's Steven Soderbergh, <laughs> but you don't, you know, it's like stepping into his tone and, uh, and thinking about that, or at least for me as a filmmaker, mm -hmm. you know, is like trying to, tr trying to hit that tone through performance yeah. um, in the same way that I would, if I were editing for him, which he wouldn't want because he edits himself. Like mm -hmm. I, I would, you know, I would follow that same tone in yeah. some way. Um, I mean, when I watch a movie set in this time period, I sort of immediately just naturally think of like, 
family members and relatives because I'm always thinking about what life was then or what I would have been like. Do you think of like, you know, parents or how, you know, what they were like in the fifties or something? Or? Yeah. I think about my, my grandmothers who, and that was, that was another thing um, that I was thinking about with, with in building her. It's like, is but my grand my grandmas who I adore are like, or one is has is deceased, but very ahead of I, I guess that term is is sort of cliche, but like ahead of their time or whatever, in that they both had degrees and both had like jobs and they, uh, <laughs> I can say this, but, but because they don't the, the one that's still alive she actually doesn't she wouldn't mind had like a real disdain for their husbands, <laughs> like. <laughs> <laughs> like, like they didn't like the, They are very vo- like vocal about like 1950s. Not my favorite. When the 60s hit, started to become pretty cool, you know. <laughs> um, but like, but had a real disdain for that. Like having to fit into whatever the hell that was. But I don't, and I don't. I, I feel like a lot of women felt that way, and it's a myth that, like, you know, in 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 trying to approach it and thinking about how sort of rich and like weird and and um crass and just just how many layers my grandmothers have and bringing that into it you know and and that they're funny as hell and they you know you know just 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 that that they they function on all these and but they're still mothers and they're still grandmothers and they're still you know that like they function on all these multi-levels it was like to me sort of bringing that to it and not being afraid to like I, I don't know, break whatever the 1950s housewife, the idea of that is. Yeah, yeah, kind of finding the, the independent streak, finding the freedom, like, between everything. Well, just to wrap up, uh, the, the name of the podcast is The Last Thing I Saw. So I, I like to ask what the last movie or show or, or whatever that, that you saw was. I know you're on a shoot now, so you're probably busy, so it might be a while back, I don't know. <laughs> no, but I, I actually, well, I did see the the movie wise it was no sudden move because i went to the premiere (laughs) but but i did i i really loved uh amanda pete in the dirty john betty because oh it's pretty fun oh really it's 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 like it's like lifetime has started to like get what like i i for a long time was like i want to get in touch with the lifetime executives this is before they started doing like dirty john or any like or you or any of these like like cooler you know I just uh-huh. say cooler. I like have a soft spot for lifetime movies for women okay. because they, I love crazy women and I love women like in desperate situations. And so I was like, this can get pushed really far. Like we should push mm-hmm. this like super far. And Mary Heron did actually did it. I had a conversation with her at one point. She did the um, Anna Nicole Smith story for it lifetime. So oh she wow! Also was attracted to it, you know. Mm-hmm. And so, and that was before they they did anything super weird, but Amanda P is and Christian Slater in it. She is phenomenal. She's so fun to watch in it, and it's just like it's like woman on a verge. Like it's it's so, it's so she gets so crazy. <laughs> so good, <I'm> so good. <laughs> That's great. Well, I'll I'll watch that. Yeah, Mary Mary Heron's great. I loved her Charlie I, Says movie. That was crazy. Um, oh, totally. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, I, I bring this to the end. Um, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And uh, I look forward to, uh, to what you're shooting next, or what you're shooting now. <laughs> thank you. You've been listening to The Last Thing I Saw with your host, Nicholas Rapold. If you like what you heard, please consider signing up at rapold.substack.com. Special thanks to the Minarets for the opening music.
from their song, Montserrat. Thank you for listening. <laughs>